reminded of our great God and his wonderfulness and his sovereignty, his rule and reign over our lives, his holiness, his love. And now we're looking at, now that we know that, what do we do with it? We talked about knowing is transforming, knowing is for believing. Uh, Last week, Pastor Keith taking us through knowing, you're supposed to mix that together with faith. It's not just simply acquiring knowledge. And I'm going to take that a little further. And and really, in our culture, um, there's a Everybody in our culture is searching for knowledge, and really knowledge of the truth. It's become the norm in life to just be on a quest, a quest for knowledge, and you got people that go to school, and you're told to go to school again and again and again and again and again, and you're just having more knowledge, and then you're really, you encounter somebody that really wants to find out, is there, is there an answer to my soul? Is there an answer to my soul's cry of purpose and meaning and destiny? And that's all good and fine. But when you find that truth that's outside of yourself, all of a sudden the culture puts those kind of people into a different category. Now you're weird, you're fanatical, you're narrow, you're intolerant. So you can even see this resembled in the the music culture. In music, I read in a book this past week that somebody who's in the music industry said, "In, in the music industry, it's really cool to search for God. It's not very cool to find God. And if we're not careful, we get sucked into that as learners. We're just learning about God and we find things about him and then we don't do anything with it. So Pastor Keith uh, encouraged us with last week. But 2 Timothy, we're going to do uh, a, a good bit of looking through the scriptures this morning. So if you can, get to 2 Timothy 3, verse, well, we'll read a few verses together. But understand this, I'm going to go fast. I apologize for that on the front end. But just take Pete Shepherdstein's advice. If you can't find it fast enough, just stop and listen. So if you can't find where we are, just listen. I'd rather be listening than trying to thumb through your Bible to find the exact reference. But this is 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. Oh, here's a list. Those of you who are in school, the word? Here's your list. (laughs) We always have lists coming at us. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Paul is telling us, be careful, because there's going to come a day when everybody's doing their own thing and everybody's got a quest for the ultimate truth and the objective truth and knowledge that is going to satisfy our soul's cry. But he's saying be careful because there's always going to be an atmosphere of learning. But never an ability to capture the knowledge of truth. But when we, when we study scripture, we're capturing truth. Rather, truth is capturing us. It's pursuing us. Truth is coming after us. And we're going to see in a moment, it doesn't let us just sit there and agree or disagree and just say what, what it means to us. As Christians, we're, we're to be ever-seeking the knowledge of God. But we, we need to be careful not to be infected with the culture and that 
We just leave it at that. We leave it at the pursuit. We leave it at the search for knowledge and don't do anything with it. We need to allow the knowledge of God, the knowledge of truth to confront us and find expression in our lives. Ephesians, you turn left to Ephesians in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Here Paul has just spent a good bit of time in this letter. We have three chapters of it. He didn't write it as chapters, but we have three chapters of it on highlighting, really, what he's doing is exalting God. He's exalting God, exalting God's work through his son, the redemptive work through Christ. He's exalting that and saying, look, this is what God did for you. And, and then he puts you together as a people, and he calls that the church, and it's his select ones. It's the ones he's called out of the world into his marvelous light, and he's saying, be together. And here's Paul's admonition for the rest of the letter has to do with, what do you do with it? Now that you have the knowledge, what do you do with it? So he says, walk in a manner that's worthy of what you just heard. Walk in a manner worthy of the knowledge you've just received, but do it with all humility. It's easy just to read past that. But this morning we're going to pause at that word. And we're going to ask the Lord, what does he mean by that? How in our lives, how are we tangibly supposed to be walking out humility? In the Old Testament, knowledge was always good. But in the Old Testament, whenever you uh, see the word listen, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 4, listen, O Israel, hear, O Israel. That's the same word in the original language. It actually has, uh, it has the connotation, has the meaning. What they heard was you're not just supposed to hear it. It's a hearing that's followed with action. It's followed with obedience. So if you have not obeyed, you have not heard. It's a parenting tip. If your child says, I didn't hear you. Or, oh, I heard you, but I didn't do it. No, you have not obeyed. Obedience is hearing me, hear my voice, even with the TV on, hear my voice, because you know it, <laughs> and that you've been hearing it even since before you are in the world, when you are in your mother, you knew our voices, but hear, but also obey, but with our own lives, that's what's expected of us. God is revealing himself to us, he's pursuing us, and we're to hear him and obey, and humility is how that is expressed. It finds expression, one of the ways is with humility, but we have to ask the question, what, what's, the, what's your concept of humility? Is it letting, else, letting somebody else go first in line? Is that your definition of humble? Uh, grocery store, oh, you only have two items, I have 18, oh, you can go. I'm being humble. Or is it, is it holding your tongue when somebody really needs to know what you think? Oh, I, I bit my tongue on that one. I was humble could be. Or maybe your version of humility is always putting yourself down. It's the flip side of the coin. Instead of wanting people to know what you think, you're wanting them to know how pitifully you think about yourself. Is that your definition? We can get very easy into that. Just, I don't do anything right. Oh, I don't do anything right. And we walk around thinking, well, that's humility, and that's a godly characteristic that we need to be pursuing. Several years ago, 
in our staff uh, covenant group. We were talking about this topic of humility, and Peter actually, he said, which was so true, it's why I'm saying it now, he said, humility is the slipperiest thing in the Christian life. Because you're going after it, we're told to pursue it. We look in Scripture, the Holy Spirit's the one that's working that in us. We, we yield ourselves, we submit to him. The Holy Spirit's working humility in us as we're seeing the exalted Christ. But as soon as you think you have the fruit, you don't have it. It's slippery. It's this, how do you know if you're humble? Well, I'm going to live and act in a way so people tell me that. Well, you're not humble. If you're looking for it, you're not so we just fall into, well, I'll just let somebody go first then. That's what I'll do, or just I'll put myself down. But once we think we have it, we don't have it. Andrew Murray really, really, really helps us with the definition of humility. I would recommend, I found there's his little book on humility. I would recommend for those bold enough to go after his original version that he wrote. It's from the late 1800s, and what we have now is uh, abridged versions. They're written for modern language. When you get into modern language, and all of a sudden you're just searching for something, you never find it. When you, get, when you go back to what he said, and you have to do your search, uh, you can come up, come up to me. I found a few from a seller that is just itty-bitty in the publication realm, but they're producing his original version, and I had to read that because this quote that's in here is not in the updated versions. And this is the very thing that sets the book off and the trajectory for the book and for how we need to examine our own lives, figure out how do I go after this humility thing. It's a very, very helpful resource. I remember reading it for the first time about 13, 14 years ago. And I, it began a season of just seeing my pride one step after another to where it was Enough. Can I hold out the, the white flag? I surrender, God. I'm the most arrogant individual that I have ever known in my life. Please help me. <laughs> but it's good for the soul. All right, let's, let's let Andrew Murray help us. Humility is simply the sense of entire nothingness, which comes when we see how truly God is all. And in which we make room for him to be all. Two things. It's the sense of entire nothingness that comes when we see, when we gain the knowledge of how truly God is all. And in which we make room for him to be all. When the creature realizes that this is the true nobility and consents to be with his will, his mind, his affections, the form, the vessel in which the life and the glory of God are to work and manifest themselves, he sees that humility is simply acknowledging the truth of his position as creature and yielding to God his place. So Andrew Murray is saying, when you realize your nothingness in the light of God being everything in your life, and you make way, make room for him to be everything in your life, then you realize it's everything you were created to do. It's, and when you fit into that creature mold that God's created for us to be that form, that vessel, where we see something of God and it finds expression through us, that's when he's saying, now, you're, you're getting the hang of it. You're where we need to be. Acknowledging the truth of his position as creature and yielding to God 
his place, God's place in our lives. Vision of God exalts God. And the vision of God's exaltation humbles us. We don't have to go far further than Isaiah 6. And we see Isaiah, he sees God. And God draws him in. He says, look, I'm going to show you a little something. He sees, basically, he sees the exalted Christ. And what does he say? He sees the glory of his robe filling the temple and the seraphim are going, whipping around. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is a huge scene. And Isaiah has to say, whoa. Which means, I should be dead right now. But I'm not. So now all I'm seeing is that I'm really wicked. When he sees God exalted, he has more of a sense of his own weakness, his own imperfection. And he says, I'm a man who's undone. And I, I, I live among a people with unclean lips. I have unclean lips. I need help. We see in that what God intends, I think, for the Christian life. And that we see him. And the find, what finds expression in our lives is, whoa, hesitation. I shouldn't be all that I want to be. It's only God that's really come to me. <laughs> And he's done something for me. And it infuses uh, a humility where we see him exalted all. And we in our lives make way for him to be all. This is really um, a holy confrontation. And it happens more often than we think. We, don't, we, we have more of these Isaiah 6 moments than we really believe. Because we can sit down with our Bibles. It should happen. And have an Isaiah 6 moment. It's where we're undone and we see the love of God. Or we see the holiness of God. We see the grace of God reaching into our world. And we say, whoa. God, you're that great. Seeing who God is confronts us. And remember, it's, it's God. God's the one confronting us. And this is not always a pleasant experience. We know that. We're not, it's not... We don't like being told that we're wrong. And when God confronts us, we are immediately face-to-face with, he's perfect, I'm not. He's God, I'm not. Think of the relationships in your life. Do you take that well from other people in your life? When they say, I'm right and you're wrong? We don't like that. It's quite not the pleasant experience for us. And when we... When we use God's grace gifts for us, to, to, for his revealing, that being uh, the, reading the Bible, studying the word of God, listening to teaching, listening to preaching. These are moments where God has said these are grace gifts for the revealing of truth that, that we are coming in confrontation with God. He's coming to our doorstep and he's saying, I've got something to tell you. It's not quite going to be as pleasant as you might. It's not maybe not just a pat on the back. God will always be there for our good, even within correction, discipline. He's always there communicating his love and his promises to us. But when we interact with God in this way, we're, not giving the, we're never given the liberty as Christians, but Americans, we demand this type of liberty. We demand as Americans the liberty just to leave something on the table because we don't like it. But as Christians, we're never given that liberty. 
We're never given, well, you know, God, I just, um, that's a little too narrow for me. Um, no, I'm just going to leave it there. No, when you're confronted with things, usually there's a, uh, there's a gag reflex in us. You know, you know, I don't know, some of you might still struggle with taking pills, but you just can't get it down. You're trying all the water. I've got kids who will try to take it. They drink all the water, and the pill's still on the tongue. <laughs> or maybe when you were a kid, you, uh, you had that one particular food that you really had to fight the gag reflex in order to eat. Mine was corned beef hash. And my mother just said, well, I like it. And now I understand as an adult, as a parent, that uh, your palate changes as you get older. So things that you hated as a kid, all of a sudden you realize that you like, and you realize, why did I, well, your palate changed. You really did hate it as a kid, but now you're a little more tolerable to it. Well, corned beef hash, I ain't got a palate for that. <laughs> my, my brother and I, I told my mother, I was going to tease her a little bit. But my brother and I, we still, my older brother, we still tease, and we had to douse, I mean flood the corned beef hash with ketchup. <laughs> but then it became a texture problem. You know, I feel like I'm just spooning ketchup and it's got something in it. And literally, I, I'm almost having to fight the gag reflex now thinking about this. I would have to physically fight the gag reflex to finish my food because I had to obey. And it was right for me. It was right for my mother to make me obey. Finish, even if it was eat four bites, five bites, that was right for her to do. She did that. But man, that was grueling. <laughs> but listen to this. Whenever we are faced with God, we have a gag reflex. You know, some people say, oh, I had to swallow my pride on that one. That is it's idiocy. You know why? Because your pride is the best thing that you like to eat. You don't have to swallow. I love swallowing my pride. It's like going into a bakery and choosing all the cheesecake that I want to enjoy. It's just my pride. It's the way I want. No, you try to swallow your nothingness, all of a sudden you got a gag reflex going on. It's like, whoa, this is not natural. <laughs> but listen, when, when we're confronted with God, there's... A pride in us that resists what we're being shown. We have to be aware of that. That's where we come in to the process in our yielding to be able to say, God, I want to taste and see that you are good. But right now, I really just want my pride. I want my own opinions. I want the way I do things. And I want because I like them that way. And I want this person to think this way of me because I have to have that. Or God, you need to give me this in order for my life to make sense, there, there are reflexes that we have that our pride has toward when God is coming to us. That's why it is a confrontation, and it's a confrontation every time we read the word, and we're confronted with the preached word, and we're confronted with teaching. Yes, we grow and mature to where our palate is now saying, God, I understand that what you have for me is more, more much better than anything my pride can give me, but I mean, I still love my pride. I love the taste. I love the sweetness. But when we accept God as he is revealing himself to us, when we receive it by faith, that's the key. When we receive it by faith, it's the spoonful of sugar helping the medicine go down. Then we, we're able to understand ourselves clearer. We're able to understand God in a clearer way. 
that he's holy and we're not. We're drawn into him, but we're hesitant at the same time because we realize his enormity, his power, his sovereignty, his greatness, his majesty. But we're also so aware of our inadequacies, our own weakness. We're put in our place and we sense our smallness. We sense our nothingness. And that's to be the thing that should be becoming our dear friend. Now, this is a redemptive nothingness. It's not a self-pity nothingness. Oh, woe is me. I'm just so horrible. I never do anything right. No, you're just as proud as the person saying, listen to my thought. I know what I'm talking about. I know you don't care what I'm talking about, but I'm going to say it anyway because I like what I'm talking about. Just as proud. When we don't have a correct understanding of God's exaltation confronting us, but he overwhelms us with his love and his goodness. And now, when we're seeing this, seeing that he is all, it produces a redemptive sense of nothingness in that we capture the glimpse of his amazing grace, and then now we're postured to be who he wants us to be, yielding ourselves to him so he can be seen more fully through us. Do we get that? Our pride muddles things up. We're seeing something of God. We're interacting with it. In our own pride, we might not like it. No, that's uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. But when we receive it by faith, we're now saying, no, me, I'm getting cleansed. So now the life, the knowledge of God can be seen through me. And it finds expression with that sense of nothingness, that humility that God is working in all of us. We're overwhelmed with his love, his choice of us, in that it was his free choice, his own free will that he chose us, not our own. And we're amazed by that. Well, God, you chose me before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before you. I wasn't at the the foundation of the world. And God chose me then. It should, when that confronts me, it confronts my sense of, no, 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 I want participation in this deal. I want participation in my salvation. I, I remember praying. I remember choosing. Yeah, but that was my first fruit of God already capturing my heart. He did it. And when we, when we understand, see his exaltation, we, 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 we get back. We take a step back. We sense our own smallness, the fact that God is everything. And he, he overcame us as sinners and now won us over and made us sons and daughters, heirs with Christ. The sense, the, the nothingness is redemptive in the sense that it makes way for God to be all in our lives. But when we make room for him, here comes the hard part. When we make room, making room for God, we, this confrontation is about kingdoms colliding. And it's about the kingdom of me and the kingdom of God colliding. Because that's really where it happens. And in order to make room, we need to make room for the kingdom of God in our lives. But let's look for a moment at how we go after the kingdom of me. And that particularly would be the capital I. We're all about the capital I. We're all about me and mine, doing everything to keep me and mine. And we insert ourselves, we, we, we protect the capital I. We, we want people to know our accomplishments. We want people just, can we just kind of ease ourselves in to, you know, if you're ever in a conversation and you find that you always have a better story or not a better one, but maybe another story when somebody's telling their story, who, whose kingdom 
are you talking about there? Looking for yourself in the picture? Seeing people that got together and you are not in the picture? Well, now I have a whole different set of fears. Well, you know you do it. You go on the computer, you go flipping through pictures, you're looking for yourself. And then as soon as you find yourself, oh, that's oh, it's such an ugly picture. <laughs> it reveals the kingdom that we're going after. How we protect ourselves in, in uh, what other people's opinions, we try to control what other people's opinions are about us and, and their perceived acceptance of us. These are dangers and they're, they're in the varied context of our lives that are hitting us every single day. Sesame Street is profound. Did y'all know that? I spent a lot of years now watching Sesame Street. One as a kid and then as a parent. But I remember several years ago, I was, um, and it typically happens, and I don't know why, but I'll end up watching a TV show that we all started out watching, but everybody left to go play with something else, and I'm still watching. I don't know what that really says about me. But one time in those moments, I was watching, and they had this cartoon came on, and it looked like it was made in the late 70s, uh, called the Capital I. And this, it was to a little tune, and they had the Capital I, and they had this, it was a cartoon, so the little guys came out of a little door in the eye, and they have a ladder in there, polishing it up, and then they go back in the eye. And I just thought, the words to that song, they're profound, because it really describes us. But yeah, it's teaching. I'm not thinking, well, it's teaching little kids to do that too. But it was profound in this way. So I'm going to read you the lyrics to the song, Capital I, from Sesame Street, because it is profound. We all live in a capital I, in the middle of the desert, in the center of the sky. And all day long we polish on the eye to keep it clean and shiny so it brightens up the sky. Rubbing it here, scrubbing it there, polishing the eye so high in the air. As we work, we sing a lively tune. It's great to be so happy on a busy afternoon. We busy ourselves with eye, don't we? And when we're through with the day's only chore, we go into the eye and we close the door. Capital I, capital I, capital I, capital I. <laughs> We do that. <laughs> and look, I, I thought about this last night because there's three little guys that come out and they're identical and they're polishing the eye. I thought, it's I, why is it three? And then, up, oh, me, myself, and I. <laughs> Which probably is the unholy trinity, huh? <laughs> but we, we do that. It's in the center, it should be the center, not the center of my, the sky, my sky. In the center of my sky, I polish it. And to keep it clean and shiny so it brightens up my sky, rubbing it and scrubbing it, polishing it. We're singing about how busy we are about I. And look, insightful. And when we're through with the day's only chore, how much do we devote just to ourselves? In the varied context, in family dynamics, going out for the kingdom of me. In the workplace, going out for the kingdom of me. Choose your context in the church, going out for the kingdom of me, wanting everybody else to know that. And when, <laughs> when the day's only chore is through, we go into the eye and we close the door. Don't let anybody in. This is me, and it's my stuff. 
We live for the kingdom of me. We love the control. We love the authority that the kingdom of me affords. And we find that in these uh, husbands with wives, conversations with coworkers, in your finances, are you living for the kingdom of me in your finances? Or do they reflect the kingdom of God? Struggle with sin. Do you know your struggle with sin can be about the kingdom of me? Not exalting God in your life, but you personally overcoming those things. Pursuit of ease and entertainment, pride and accomplishments. These all are things knocking at our door. Paul Tripp helps us understand how we fight, uh, how we are kingdom oriented and we fight for the kingdom of self in his book. What did you expect He said, we are kingdom-oriented people. We always live in the service of one of two kingdoms. We live in the service of the small personal happiness agenda of the kingdom of self, or we live in the service of the huge origin to destiny agenda of the kingdom of God. When we live for the kingdom of self, our decisions, thoughts, plans, actions, and words are directed by personal desire. We know what we want, where we want, why we want, how we want, when we want it, and who we would prefer to deliver it. Our relationships are shaped by the infrastructure of subtle expectations and silent demands. Key words there, underline those. Excellent ways for us to look. Do we have these subtle expectations that we've never told anybody because to tell them would be overtly proud, and we certainly don't want to do that because we have to play humble, But we have these subtle expectations of the people in our lives, and we don't, when they don't meet those expectations, we're confrontational. We're either confrontational because you need to pay more attention to me, or we're passively confrontational that we ignore and give cold shoulders and silent demands. We know what we want from people and how to get it from them. We seek to surround ourselves with people who will serve our kingdom purposes. And we evaluate them not from the perspective of the laws of God's kingdom, but from the perspective of the laws of our own kingdom. Turn to Luke 18. Verses 9. Through 14. And he, Jesus, told them a parable. Wrong one. Verse 9 would be the place where I need to go. He also, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee 
uses the capital I four times. One, two, three, four, five. Five times. He's, he's looking out, really, he's looking out for the capital I. He's proud of his accomplishments toward God. And you know, this was seen, he's even thanking God for all of his accomplishments. He's thanking God that he's not like other people. And you know what, and the issue here with the Pharisee is not necessarily in what he's saying. Because, and, and everybody that was hearing that would hear a selfless life. Fasting twice a week. Really the, the kingdom of, or, or the nation of Israel was only told to fast once a year. And that was for Passover. But now, he's saying, I fast twice a week. And that was usually on Mondays and Thursdays. I fast twice a week and I give tithes on all that I get, which usually was around 20%. So this guy, with his finances, with his life, coming under subjection to live for God, he's saying, God, I'm doing something for you. And everybody else looking on him is saying, you're doing something for God. But the issue with the Pharisee is not in what he's saying. Because look, we too, we need to be thankful that we're not murderers that we're not adulterers, that we're not extortionists. It's right to thank God for those things. It's the, the grace of God that keeps us from just sinning from what our heart really desires. And then we couldn't even stand that we scorn when other people sin that way. God has protected us from those very things, those very sins. But here the issue with the Pharisee is in the first thing that Jesus said right here. He told, in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And look at the expression. The expression of the Pharisee's life was what? Not humility, contempt. When there's a trust in self, when there's the kingdom of me agenda that's raising, everything in life becomes contemptuous. Because it's the expression, it's how pride expresses itself. But here he's trusting in his own achieved righteousness, but rather the tax collectors on the other side. Now, we first have to see ourselves in the Pharisee. We see ourselves in the Pharisee in our attempts to be humble apart from seeing God. See, we can try to be humble, but if it's not after, if, we, if we're seeking to do the mechanics of humility and it's divorced from seeing the revealed God, as he has revealed himself, that God is all. When that is absent and all we're living out is the functionality of being humble, we're only self-absorbed. We're only self-oriented in that moment. And so the expression of our lives becomes self-rule. I know what to do. Self-sufficiency, self-reliance. I got this under control. I don't need anybody's help. Self-pity. I never do anything right. It's all about self. When we seek to be humble apart from seeing God, this is where it ends up. And also, it drives us inward to our own vindication before God. And that's the dangerous aspect. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The tax collector, on the other hand, is in such awareness of his nothingness because of his sinfulness. And just because he's a tax collector, that was given there, and, and this is a parable, so the people hearing that would automatically associate tax collector with most evil person in the world, Satan. You're Satan, that's who you are, because you're a tax collector. You turn on your own people, and you're an extortionist because you take people's money and you give it to Rome. Now, he, he could have been 
He didn't, just because tax collectors are usually seen as, oh, they stole money from everybody. They overcharged in order to keep. And that's how they would make their money is on commission. But they would raise their commission so much that it, was look like, it was seen as if you were robbing the nation of Israel. Well, he might not have been that. But we, what we have is a man who is undone by his own awareness of himself. And he's got one prayer request. Mercy. Mercy, Father, beating his breast. He's looking for an outside righteousness. The Pharisee, looking, he's proud of his own righteousness. He's proud of that righteous being oriented in himself. Yeah, God gave it to him, but he perfected it. But the tax collector, on the other hand, is saying, I don't have a righteousness that can stand before you. I don't have a righteousness that can look at you. I have a righteous. I need a righteousness to be able to even. So please, have mercy on me knowing that he has nothing in and of himself to offer and give God. We need to make room in our hearts for the kingdom of God to rule and reign. Here's where the battle for humility happens. Whose kingdom are we going to live for? Are we going to live for our own kingdom or are we going to live for God's kingdom? If we want humility, slippery, can't have it. Kingdom agenda, very tangible. Very fruit-oriented, very measurable, quantifiable. We can figure out, am I living for God enough? We can do that. And as we live for him, as we see him, the expression and how we interact with other people is going to be out of that sense of, God, I am nothing before you. My, I had no moral beauty that attracted you to me. It was simply your sovereign good choice, free choice. You were bound to me in no way, but yet you chose me. We need to die to our own kingdom agendas, allow the knowledge of God to humble us, and, and then raise the flag of the king of kings in our hearts. But to do that, we need to be nothing. We have, to, we have no place further to look than Jesus himself. If you turn to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 3. Paul's telling the Philippians, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who had the form already of God's revelation, he didn't have to adjust himself like we do. We have to be purified in order to be a greater reflection of God's purity and greatness. That's what sanctification is, becoming more like Christ. Well, Christ is the standard. He doesn't have to become more holy. He is the Holy One. But yet, when he comes to the earth, he has a different kingdom agenda. And his kingdom agenda is, I want to serve my Father. And in order to do that, I'm going to become nothing we have a very very 
humble God. A very humble God. Took the form of a servant, humbled himself. And look, these are a list, uh, you have these in your notes, of Jesus' nothingness in John. These are his references about himself through the book of John. Verse five, or chapter 5, verse 19. The Son can do nothing on his own. 638. Not to do, I came not to do my own will. 716 and 28. My teaching is not mine. Not of my own accord. 828. Nothing on my own authority. 1249, not on my own authority. 14, 10, and 24, I do not speak on my own authority. The word you hear is not mine. This, this is huge. Because Jesus came showing us what this righteousness that we need is all about. But more than that, he's revealing to us how we walk out humility in our lives. When we see God, and here's how we cultivate it. We see God's exaltation. You know what our response is? Be put in our place, sense our own nothingness, and serve. Find somebody else to serve. Find a way to get on your hands and knees and wash feet. Now you can do it all, and you can have the most arrogant person in the world trying to play humble and, and literally sit somebody down, I just wanna wash your feet, brother. You mean nothing. That doesn't mean anything because your heart's not in that. No, you find somebody to serve from deep down within you where you only like to have your pride serve you. Go after the kingdom of God. Humility is to be cultivated in daily life as the expression of our accumulating the knowledge of God, being confronted with God, seeing God as he is. He's all in our lives. Andrew Murray, again, helping us in his book, Humility, Accept every humiliation. Let's think about that. Accept every humiliation. Driving in the car yesterday. Think around eight years old. The kids clue in. Mm, I can read and I can read street signs. And I can read speed limit. And I start to figure out that the number on there is as fast as you can go. And I can look over the speedometer and know that dad's going too fast. <laughs> Happened yesterday. Driving down, Dad, you're, you're speeding. Okay, I was, it's 30, I'm going 36. And in me, look, this is what I want to do. You don't understand something. All the policemen, they give you a little window. <laughs> I'm in the window, all right? I didn't say that. But at that moment, I said, okay. So that's what happens when you preach, man. You get all these lessons the week of. It's like, man, careful what you agree to preach about. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Let me slow down. But here, I'm going to humble myself before you. I didn't tell her she was right. I should have. You know why? Because I don't want to keep on doing it. <laughs> Ooh, got one on dad. Mm, now I'm going to see every time. Staring over. Accept every humiliation. Think about that. 
Every time you say something wrong, every time you know you're wrong and you just want to crawl under a rock because you thought you were so right, avoiding the people that know you were wrong, I tell you, the greatest fruit of accepting every humiliation is going to be in your marriage. And then your kids are going to see it. You can do it with your kids. And then it transitions to the workplace. And then it happens in the church. We have, this is our context. This should be after family comes the church and then the workplace. Because we have more. You can easily get along with people at your workplace uh, better than you do here at church. And that's on purpose. Because God puts very different people together. We're not all the same. And we're not perfect. You can't come, uh, I forget who said this, I think Tim Keller said, people come uh, looking, come to church looking for heaven when they should realize it's a hospital. All of us are broken. All of us are trying to figure out, okay, what, what meds do I need today because I'm not right and I need help. I need something right now. But they come in looking for heaven, so as soon as you do one wrong thing, then they're out the door and whoa, whoa, whoa. What's God's design? God's design is that we be together with one another to what? Walk out your calling in a worthy manner with all humility. Accept every humiliation. Look upon every person who tires or vexes you as a means of grace to humble you. How about that? Use every opportunity of humbling yourself before your fellow man as a, as a help to abide humble before God. God will accept such humbling of yourself as the proof that your whole heart desires it, as the very best prayer for it, as your preparation for his mighty work of grace when by the mighty strengthening of his Holy Spirit he reveals Christ fully in you so that he, in his form of a servant, is truly formed in you and dwells in your heart. You try to be a servant without Christ, seeing the exalted Christ and being undone by how he served us in his sacrificial life, death, and then being raised from the dead, serving us the whole way, took a form of the servant throughout. If we're, not, if we're trying to be a servant without that, it's only about me. It's only about the, the, the affection I want to draw out of you, the praise I want to draw out of you, the, the, just the acknowledgement that I'm better than you because I serve better. All of those little sneaky, subtle things coming in. Our greatest ally in slaying the kingdom of me and having humility, seeing God, having humility expressed is to be a servant. Jesus said, Mark 10, 45, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Serve your spouse. Serve your family. Serve in the church. Serve in your covenant group. See every person who tries or vexes you as a means of grace to humble you. Serve in your workplace. Serve with your finances. Serve in your relationships. Servanthood increases your dependence upon God. When we serve, we realize, I really can't do this on my own. God, I really do need you. It loosens the control and the authority that we have on our own lives because we're no longer the king. We're his servant. So our control and our Authority wisps away. Serving is a tangible fruit. It's a very tangible flag raising for the kingdom of God in our lives. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
You want the kingdom of God? Be humble, be a servant. And I would add this, serving has a smile. If you're not smiling, it's just about yourself. You're just self-absorbed. You serve your wife, you serve your husband, you serve your family, and if you are so irritated by their lack of recognition of your serve, you're self-absorbed. It's about your own kingdom. But we, we have a humble Savior who came to this earth and he emptied himself to win us over. And our life as Christians is about seeing that in deeper and brighter and grander ways. And when we do that, it finds expression in us by our saying, God, you don't need me. I am small. I sense my nothingness before you. But Lord, I want to make room for you to be all in my life. Let's stand up together. Lord, thank you for the gracious confrontation that's taken place this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you are jealous over the spirit that you've made to dwell within us. And you won't let us keep it on the road of our own pride. You're going, thank you. Thank you for stopping us in our pride before destruction occurs. And Father, where destruction has occurred, God, give us grace as we humble ourselves to let you shine forth. In the relationships of our lives, Lord, we come to you and we lay those before you. We open them up and say, Lord, help. Help me in my relationship with my spouse. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. Help me in relating to my kids. I don't know what to do. Help me in the workplace, conversations and relationships there with, the, uh, with management, with coworkers, where there's been tension and strife. Lord, thank you this morning that you've given us what to do, and that's to serve. Help us serve. Humble us as we see you, Jesus. See you exalted. See you on the cross and your death for us. But knowing that you stand now beside the Father as the reigning King of glory. How it humbles us. And we want to serve like you did. Help us serve in this church. Lord, I, I pray for a, a fresh wind of your spirit to blow through all of those who have been serving for years who might be weary and tired. Lord, grace them to keep on going and to serve well and to serve with smiles. We want to depend on you. We want to release control this morning. Releasing control and authority of our own lives, we want you. So we raise that banner high. We raise the flag of your kingdom high in our hearts. Help us, Jesus, as we look to